Vineet Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Hello, I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts, two Jews on the news. Happy Purim, Jonathan. Purim Samer to you, your Purim Samer. I, from... I brought props. Oh, have you? That's good. You, you have a little this. rattle there to make noise. What could I do? I'll <laughs> drum the table. Every time we say the name of a hated figure, one of us has to drum the figure. It could be a very noisy podcast, this one, because we may mention lots of it could, forbidden it could. figures. Can I use the competition on other channels in Israel? Could I do that as well? As soon as you uh, mention the their rattle. name, we'll start rattling and howling and humming. We'll do it all. <laughs> Purim is really the, I don't I don't want to say the greatest of Jewish holidays because Hanukkah has a special place as well. But I mean, it's a good holiday, isn't it? It is if you are a cross-dresser. It is if you're interested <laughs> in fantasy role play. I, I make no comment or even suggestion. But no, it is the dressing up festival. And I've told you before, listeners know, I live in the heart of Haredi, uh, London. And so it is the one day, you have to say, where kids who, you know, I feel with some regret, they're often very dressed very uniformly. You know, you'll see siblings of six or eight or nine ultra-Orthodox kids all dressed identically. But Purim is the one day they get to dress up and play Usually, actually, not sort of superheroes in the kind of Marvel sense, but often kind of biblical heroes. So it's within limits. It's within limits. But it's, yes, it's dressing up day. And of course, it's the day when we are instructed to get so drunk, we cannot tell one from the other, from, you know, good from evil, left from right. So, and, you know, this is one uh, rule that is observed very diligently by my neighbors, I can assure you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they had a plot to kill us. We responded with a counterplot. Now let's get drunk and uh, wear costumes every year. It's a great holiday. You mentioned the one day of costume. Now I'm going to unleash my Purim rant, if you'll allow it. Please. Um, it has nothing. I know. I let Just a disclaimer. We're very lucky this year in Israel that we actually have uh, a certain uh, partly uh, open school system. So there are actually kids going to school. But just detached from that, I have to say that somewhere between being a child and becoming a parent myself, Purim has morphed into an eight-day event, right? So you have the official costume day in school and the kindergartens, and then you have the come with pajamas and come as adults and come in animal costume and come as princes and princesses. And it, you know, in a hat day. So it morphed into like this eight days of, of, of costume celebrations where you're asking yourself, wait, the miracle of Purim was actually that the costumes lasted for eight days? What happened here? <laughs> um, so this is what we have been going through. And of course, if you have three kids like I do, it's never in sync and you have to figure out which kid goes with what's theme today. Uh, this is how this is how it is in this country. Oh, so you don't get all three kids in pajamas one day and all three kids as prince no, that slash was, that would be That would make sense, oh, what you're saying. it's done in Israeli style. Okay, <laughs> now I, I get the idea. Now, we don't have that here. It's only one day, but it sounds like there they have merged into one thing. Here, um, it was, you know, because my kids uh, have been at Jewish schools, uh, therefore Purim did happen, which created an odd thing because they would travel to school by public transport. And remember, for everyone else, it's not Purim. Right. So, <laughs> so they would have to go to school. My son, who's, you know, my older son has always had a bit of an interest in politics. I can't imagine where that came from. He went to school, His mother, you know, age, age 14 as Kim Jong-un, traveling <laughs> on the regular train in North London with everyone else just wearing school uniform and thinking, what is going on here with this kid? Because you can't, you know, how does he explain it's Purim? You know, whereas, as I say, among just the tiny neighbourhood where we live, fine. But once he was unleashed onto public transport, very difficult to explain that. Um, and so, yeah, I think, look, consider yourself very lucky because at least 
Everyone else is doing it. Spare a thought for the minority. We're back on our favorite theme. Here in Diaspora, Purim is a tricky one because not everyone's doing it, and that can create complexities. Uh, Though you are very lucky because you are, it sounds like you're kind of basically out of lockdown. School's here, uh, still out. And so my, you know, younger son who's still in school got the email saying those dread words, virtual Purim. Oh, that's sad. That is sad. You don't want to be doing the hat and the costume on Zoom. (laughs) That is not (laughs) fun. Or you could just use the cat filter and say, I'm not a cat. I mean, that is like what you can do on virtual Purim, right? Oh, that would be very good. That would be clever. He could have done that, actually, as his costume. Okay, I may have to break off and run downstairs and tell him that, because that is a very neat solution uh, for Purim. But schools are going to be back soon on March the 8th, because this week the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has announced a plan, a roadmap. Older listeners will remember roadmap for being George W. Bush's plan for Israel-Palestine, but now it has new meaning because it is our way out of lockdown. And it's very and funny And this because- meaning might actually work. Right. Well, this is the funny Contrary thing. Contrary to the other roadmap you just mentioned. Exactly. Oh, well, that. And also, I was going to say, to the compared to the earlier lo- lockdowns, you know, yep. Purim, people know it's the festival where everything is upside down and topsy-turvy. And so, the British Prime Minister, who probably doesn't know the fine uh, theological niceties of Purim, is himself enacting a kind of topsy-turvy Purim thing, because he has inverted his whole personality and become this sober, calm patient figure. Previously, all through coronavirus, he was impatient, saying it's going to be over in five minutes. We're going to, it's, we'll, we're going to send this virus packing and over-promising and under-delivering and having to change his mind. Now, topsy-turvy Purim style, he's the opposite. He's this calm, uh, uh, cautious figure who is saying, this very gradual plan, don't get excited. I know you've got the vaccine, but don't rush. Uh, We're going to phase it out with the first thing being a return to schools on March the 8th. Yeah. So uh, if Boris Johnson is going as the serious Boris for Purim, I think it's safe to say that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is going as uh, vaccine Santa for Purim because uh, the story coming out of Israel this week uh, was uh, that Israeli journalist Gilly Cohen reported that Israel is going to send 100,000 vaccines to 19 nations around the world. Some of these nations announced that they were moving or had already moved embassies or missions to Jerusalem, Honduras, Guatemala, and Czech Republic. There was no debate at all uh, in the security cabinet, no authorization by the justice minister, a foreign minister, and, and Benny Gantz, who's the defense minister, and by the way, interim justice minister, said uh, that Netanyahu thinks he's a running running a kingdom and not a state uh, by this decision. Obviously, Israel's already criticized for not making it a priority to vaccinate the Palestinians. We'll, we may talk a little bit more about that. But it isn't making us look better, right? This this These 100,000 uh, vaccinations being sent uh, abroad. No, I don't think it is because, I mean, vaccine diplomacy, which is a new thing now in our world, but it's a real thing, you know, with uh, China and India, you know, jostling with each other to distribute vaccines to win influence and goodwill in Asia, etc. You know, I I know the United Arab Emirates is is giving some vaccine to Egypt. Obviously, this is a thing uh, to be doing Russia trying to boost its profile. But the Problem here is it's very transparent that, you know, Israel is basically rewarding friends, you know, that Hungary has set up a, a trade mission in Jerusalem or uh, the Czech Republic has promised to do something similar. And therefore, because of that recognition, uh, BB uh, wants to reward those countries uh, with vaccine. 
Uh, I don't think it goes down well for the reason you've nodded to, which is the story, a big story around the world is that Israel is not uh, vaccinating uh, its nearest neighbours. And therefore, it misses something, I think, about vaccine diplomacy. Well, you know, why don't we just talk about that? Because, of course, that has reached a new audience, that notion of what Israel is doing and not doing with vaccine. Right. And it, it reached a new audience. And you're referring to the SNL clip that, uh, how shall we say this, caused a bit of a ruckus uh, this week. So let's uh, listen in and talk a little bit more about that. Israel is reporting that they vaccinated half of their population. And I'm going to guess it's the Jewish half. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you mentioned this, Jonathan, about how um, if, uh, I think you said this in one of the previous episodes, if this was New Zealand, we wouldn't be hearing the end of the vaccination thing, but because it's Israel and it's politically charged, there's, there's added complexity, um, to, to the story. Yeah. I mean, you know, you hesitate to say that that SNL clip went viral, ho, ho, um, but because we're <laughs> talking about viruses. I'm not sure we can use but, that word anymore but, in 2021. You know, that, that, to me, that was a big moment really, because, um, you know, it's mainstream, it's American comedy. If that is now, it seems to me there's a judgment there that Saturday Night Live are making that among its audience, there will be a perception, a, a more left-wing, frankly, view of Israel than I think would have been true a generation ago. Uh, and that you can make a joke like that and it's sort of edgy, uh, but that, that among a kind of millennial SNL audience mm -hmm. who, let's say, you know, revere Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, the idea that Israel is basically a little bit, you know, racist is a joke that lands with that audience. That's what I think SNL are thinking there. And, and, and just on the point about vaccine diplomacy, it seems to me that is the piece that Netanyahu is missing, which is, okay, you think you get a little bit of goodwill in Hungary or Czech Republic or wherever, but actually what is noticed around the world, and I know we can get into the arguments for and against, is that Palestinians are not being vaccinated by Israeli vaccine. And that's the big picture to the point where it's a butt of an SNL joke. Well, first of all, I mean, I completely agree with you that what I think what Israelis should notice here is that if this sort of attitude has percolated down to mainstream networks, then there's an issue, right? I mean, I, I, we interviewed Jeff Goldberg the other uh, an episode ago, and, and I remember a sentence he said to me a, a while back. He said, Israel acts like it has a PR problem when it actually has a problem. So I think that that is something to note when you think of this uh, story. I, I do think that we should probably say that in a in a program that has a head, if I'm not mistaken, a head writer, a director, and a producer that are all Jewish, I don't think we can claim that it's a den of anti-Semitism, right? But I think that we should notice the, exactly what you said, that it, it, it enters the mainstream. Now, I, I have a feeling that I need to say, right, um, and I don't want to sound too much uh, the Hasbara representative here, but the, the Palestinian Authority under the Oslo Accords is dealing with the procurement of vaccinations for the Palestinians. It signed a, a deal with AstraZeneca for 2 million vaccinations. The Emiratis, the Russians are giving tens of thousands of vaccinations and the WHO, World Health Organization, 37,000 uh, vaccinations. Israel is sending a few thousand and is already sort of open. And this was a, an issue here, specifically the border between uh, uh, passing the vaccinations between the West Bank and Gaza. That has also been opened. Israel is vaccinating the uh, uh, Palestinians who uh, work in Israel. So this is being dealt with, right? There are Palestinians and Israelis, health officials who are meeting every week and discussing this. It's not that uh, I, uh, you know, again, I'm Israeli. This is my uh, point of view, but I don't think we can say that Israel fumbled the ball. But again, this is a joke that is being made. I think it's a decision if you think it's funny or not. But um, but I think that the, the issue is that it is already sort of hit the mainstream.
I think so. And that is a problem for Israel. I think so. I mean, like all these arguments, there is a legal text that both sides can cite. So if you want to uh, defend Israel, you say, look, the Oslo Accords hand responsibility to the Palestinian Authority. If you want to criticize Israel, you look at the Fourth Geneva Convention, which says the occupying power has got some responsibility and should coordinate with the local authorities on health, especially during a pandemic or epidemic. And so you can cite either text. In a way, my argument would be, if you're in the business of vaccine diplomacy, why not put aside what you are legally obliged to do and just say, either morally or even, frankly, if you go back to your Jeff Goldberg quote, if you're worried about the PR, just give the vaccine to them and say you're doing it as a good neighbor uh, because you you realize that viruses don't recognize boundaries and these are your neighbors. And that way, imagine the PR hit you know, if whatever goodwill Netanyahu thinks he's going to get in Hungary or the Czech Republic for 5,000 doses here and 5,000 doses there, imagine the global picture of Israel just heading this off and saying, we don't have to legally, but we're going to do it. And actually, you'd have thought that the right wing in Israel would have liked that because then the message would have been a kind of de facto annexation message. This is all our territory. We're in charge. It's ours. That's how we're going to operate. And in a funny way, by saying, no, no, nothing to do with us, it's not ours, it surely plays into the hands of those who say, yeah, it doesn't, because there are two separate entities here, and ultimately there should be two separate states. So right. I think it's it's Bibi Netanyahu's Mr. Trick by his own lights, let alone by the lights of his critics. I'm not sure if it's black or white or there are shades of gray here. I think Israel is making sure that, I mean, again, with these conversations between the uh, Ministry of Health in the Palestinian Authority and in, and in Jerusalem, is making sure that the Palestinians are indeed receiving the vaccinations. Um, I do think that it's worthwhile to note that there is no Likud voter that would vote for Netanyahu because he transferred, he made a big deal of of sending uh, vaccinations to the Palestinians. That's also something to maybe say uh, before this election season. Uh, But indeed, it's it's obviously a topic. Now, if we are on the topic of vaccinations and, and vaccination diplomacy, I think we have to mention the, how shall we call it, the curious case of the Russian vaccinations in the nighttime Um, just, uh, you know, a a very strange, bizarre, bizarre story about, and I must say, according to foreign reports, Israel has agreed to purchase hundreds of thousands of Russian-made COVID vaccines that will be given to Syria as part of a deal to release an Israeli woman who crossed into Syria. Now, the agreement between Jerusalem and Moscow to secure her release included a commitment that the vaccine transfer would remain a secret um, which means in Israel basically imposing military censorship, hence the uh, foreign quoting the foreign reference. reports. Yeah. Um, this is a bizarre story, uh, really. I mean, it's clear why every side of this triangle wanted to keep it clandestine, but really this is a strange a strange story. It really is. I mean, well, look, for one, the politics of this are, aren't great. I, I take your point about election domestic politics is different, but again, in terms of global optics, you know, Israel has enough vaccine, obviously, for its own settlers who live in the West Bank, has enough vaccine for, you know, Syrians, but it doesn't have the vaccine for the people who might live in the next door village to the Jewish settlement in the West Bank for Palestinians there. So it underlines again that point. It's But the bit I don't get about it, and this is not a kind of moral judgment, is Russia is close to the Syrian regime anyway. If it wanted uh, those Syrians to have the vaccine it could have just given them to them. It didn't need Israel to, as it were, pay for them. Um, and so, it, you know, from each piece, of, uh, sort of corner of this triangle, 
it is, as you say, the, a very curious case. Um, you know, we know from precedent that Israel is prepared to go to all kinds of lengths to get back its own people. But I think this is an uncomfortable story, given, again, the spotlight on who Israel is not giving the vaccine to. Now up pops the story about who it is giving the vaccine to, and it doesn't look great. I mean, I've heard, I think that's a a good question why Putin would be interested in this. Um, I've heard so many different sort of stories. One of them is that he wanted, he he was okay with giving the vaccinations to the Syrians, but he wanted someone else to pay for them. And the other story is that he wanted sort of an authorization from the Israelis or for anyone else that the Russian vaccinations are good. I almost want to say kosher, but are good vaccinations. So, I mean, this is, again, this is a very bizarre story. And as you say, it it sheds light on the fact that uh, Israel is still under uh, criticism, even though I I would, I think less so today than a month ago or two months ago uh, for the, for the lack of, uh, for the issue of the Palestinian uh, vaccinations. Um, Would we want to move on to Israeli politics, Jonathan? I mean, it goes so seamlessly well, given that politics (laughs) is, you know, all of this is politicking and it's all electioneering and what how how far are we are we away from election day i I was gonna say let's not forget there were 25 days before elections and i'm saying that because it is really easy to forget i mean if you drive around or walk in the streets here uh or even watching tv you're not gonna notice the usual sort of brouhaha of of elections right i mean there's not the the three main sort of contenders jockeying for the crown right the bennett sar lapide Obviously, we're in a coronavirus year. They're not. They're not going to be big rallies unless you're Donald Trump. But but you know they're not doing enough when there's a, a main contender in the field like like uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, Saar and, Le- and Bennett are doing some television interviews. Lapid is not. I think he's going for the micro targeting, which is always problematic because you can get micro votes. But it seems like you are not attacking. You're not going for the jugular, right? I mean, Lapid could be attacking or hammering Netanyahu on the whole sort of ultra-Orthodox connection. Uh, uh, you know, Gideon Saar could say Netanyahu is not a player in the whole story uh, between the U.S. And, and Iran, right? Wait, Iran, just a sec. Just going to do this. <laughs> Look, if you're not going to use the rat all about Iran and, yeah. in a Purim program, when are you going to use it? Um, so, I mean, they are not, <laughs> they are not on this, right? It's, it's a very, you kind of feel like there's a field with only one main player. It is really hard to figure this out because the idea of the non-campaign campaign definitely does exist in politics, but it usually exists for the front runner or the incumbent who sits on a lead and therefore does not go out campaigning because you can only lose from it. It's only downside. And you make your rivals look small because they're out electioneering. And meanwhile, they used to call it the Rose Garden strategy in American politics. The president would sit in the White House deliberately governing above the fray. You could understand that if it was, uh, you know, if Yair Lapid, say, was 25 points ahead, fine, then you do yeah. that. But if you're not, it is just strange. And oddly, it echoes something that's going on here too, where we have, you know, the non-opposition opposition in the form of Labour and its uh, still relatively new one-year-on leader, Keir Starmer, who consistently refuses to oppose the government. So just now, the government's new lockdown easing plan that I mentioned, uh, Labour said, yep, fine, we're we're on board with that. You know, should have happened a bit earlier, but yep, it gets a green light from us. And I wonder if both what Starmer is showing and even Lapid and Saar in Israel, and maybe in other places around the world, is the difficulty of opposing and being the opposition during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Because it's a moment of national, global 
crisis. People maybe, you know, do voters expect their politicians to just club together in the national interest to not be fighting themselves? Does it look like squabbling at a time of crisis? I just wonder if it's it's a pretty hard act to pull off when the country and the world is going through a, a, something like a pandemic. Maybe the, the usual rules of politics have been suspended. And Israel, as so often, just shows that more dramatically, more vividly than other countries, because you're bang in the middle of an election campaign. Right. And I, I, I think that, you know, there there's one thing to keep in mind, right? That Israelis, um, you know, Mark Melman, who's a, a political consultant for Lapid and also very, you know, prominent political consultant in the U.S., tends to say that Hispanics are late deciders. Um, and, and in general, Israelis are late deciders. So really in the kind of very few days, the two or three days leading up to an election, a lot can can shift. The fact that it seems to be very dormant now doesn't mean that it won't sort of blow up. And Lapid knows this very well because in, in the 2013 elections, he t- uh, uh, transferred from being a 13 seats in the polls to 19 seats in reality, right? He was this huge sensation his first time around. So I think he's, he's, he's kind of cashing in on the option that when we kind of lead into the elections, is going to become a, a big story. I think that the fact that Netanyahu is trying to make him into the main rival means that he's staying in the shadows and doing the exact opposite, not turning into his main rival, right? Because Netanyahu wants Lapid so he can say, he can use all the old goldies from the earlier albums, right? The left is going to take over the country, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's what he's trying to do. Um, and maybe he still has, you know, a few uh, tricks up his sleeve. But it is it is a strange feeling because it's a it's a dramatic election. It's important. It's pivotal. The prime minister is going to sit after the election in his trial three days a week. And it seems like not a lot is is going on. Um, By the way, what is going on is a very strange story that was published this week in Israel about a a deputy minister in the prime minister's office named uh, Fetin Mullah, or as Israelis call him, who? I mean, quite an anonymous (laughs) chap, right, who has been, by reports, liaising with Palestinian officials to strengthen Netanyahu's uh, um, uh, power uh, among the Arab Israelis, right? Or telling them either don't go to the polls and don't vote for the joint Arab list or vote for Netanyahu. Now, Netanyahu himself has uh, denied this, uh, but, you know, uh, as Jim Hacker says in uh, Yes Minister in politics, never believe anything until it's been officially denied. I'm giving you this <laughs> example not only because it's strange and thus, you know, juicy, but also because there is one player in the field, right? I called him the Beth Harmon from Queen's Gambit a few episodes ago. He's the Beth Harmon of politics, BB. This is what he does. He's playing 10 chessboards at the same time while his rifles not picking up the game. It doesn't seem like they're picking it up. And what is so odd is that the rivals do seem to be thinking that the anti-Beth Harmon strategy, meaning being on multiple boards, will somehow work. Because, as you just said before, you know, going one-on-one with him doesn't hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. And therefore, maybe by forcing Bibi to play on 10 boards at once, having 10 rivals rather than a solo opponent somehow helps them. I think the only rational reason for believing that is, look, everything else has failed, yep. so maybe this will somehow do it. But uh, but on uh, on every other ground, no, I think it's... Um, right. It's unlikely. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't want to be this uh, uh, media building up fake drama because we never do that on commercial television, Jonathan, ever, <laughs> ever. Heaven forbid. Uh, <laughs> I remember we mentioned SNL. There was once this great skit. Jerry Seinfeld was on and he was doing this local news uh, caster and he said, uh, right after the commercials, the president is dead. But the president of what? We'll tell you in a minute. So <laughs> we, <laughs> that always is sort of epitomizes to me the, the how, how it works on commercial television. But no, we, this is not fake drama. There are a lot of 
parties on the verge of the electoral threshold, which means, and I remind you, that Naftali Bennett in 2019, the first of the very, the first of this, ele- this election cycle, was short 1,461 votes from entering the Knesset with his party. This can happen, by the way, still can happen to Naftali Bennett. It can happen to the Labour Party. It can happen to Meretz, the left of the Labour Party, or to the extreme, extreme right uh, with Itamal Ben-Gvir and Smotrich. So this is going to be a very dramatic, um, I want to say election night broadcast, but just the, <laughs> uh, the, the couple of days, not only the, the, the night itself, but the couple of days after, when they'll still be counting the votes and seeing you know, who enters and who's not. And he is brilliant at that particular game, isn't he, Netanyahu, of consolidating, cleverly working out and mm-hmm. sort of husbanding and marshalling his or the right to wing vote so it actually works efficiently and puts itself in baskets that will clear the threshold, to mix the metaphor, rather than being wasted. And that's just you know one example of how he does uh, play yep. 27-dimension chess. Yep. So we uh, want to move on to Chutzpah and Mensch and then a special Purim segment. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to make a note, Jonathan, about uh, following our conversation with Jeffrey Goldberg last week. Yeah. Um, I spoke to um, others, other voices, and I heard other voices in political Jewish community that don't all agree uh, that the state of the Jewish community in the United States is fragile. And Amos Hochstein, who is a close Biden advisor, also a an envoy in the Obama administration, also, by the way, rumored to be an option for ambassador to Israel, uh, called me up after the episode and said that the Jewish community wanted to emphasize that the Jewish community in, in the United States is safe uh, and has been a welcoming, the, America has been a welcoming home to Jews for 400 years, and that the attack... F- like the attack that we saw in Pittsburgh was so painful because partly because it was so uncharacteristic. So he really wanted to make that point. Um, and I think that we have started this interesting conversation here that we should return to one day. We definitely should know a lot of reaction to that conversation that the, the two of us had with uh, Jeff Goldberg. And uh, it's, you know, it's very heartening to to think that people are exercised and speaking about it and getting on to you. While we are sort of mopping up things, I thought we should mention, um, and, and probably do no more than just a mention, but of this story that I know that lots of people who follow Israel outside Israel have been paying a lot of attention to, and that is the publication of a book by the daughter of Amos Oz, the really, you know, the laureate of Israel. It's it's for a long time its most distinguished writer, known also as a sort of peace campaigner and activist, and, and loved and revered particularly by often liberal Jewish communities outside Israel. Um, his, his second daughter, Galia, who is herself a, a writer, released a memoir this week in which she delivered a, a very shocking uh, uh, statement in which she wrote, in my childhood, my father beat, cursed, and humiliated me, and described you know violence that, uh, as she put it, was creative, dragging her from inside the house, etc. Um, the other siblings, her siblings and the other children of Amos Oz, and of course Amos Oz's uh, widow, Neely put out a statement saying they don't remember this person at all, that they their memory of the late husband, late father, uh, is, is you know vastly at odds with that depiction. Um, and I know this has caused you know a lot of uh, debate inside Israel, partly because of Oz's extraordinary stature. I don't think we can know where, you know, the the actual truth of this story because you have a family with conflicting memories, but just thought we should record it given the intense um, uh, uh, interest and in him that there was for decades 
and the extraordinary sort of admiration there has always been and always was for him as a writer. Right. Obviously, any public discussion about these issues would be tough for any family, um, and a family sort of so prominent in in Israel. Uh, You have uh, her brother, Galia's brother, saying, writing a post on Facebook saying, uh, you know, this is a painful time for us as a family, but I know that there is a kernel of truth uh, in her words. That is is how he uh, summed it up. Let's move on and give this week's Chutzpah Award your need. Yeah, I think it's time for that. Um, I have mentioned before uh, that chutzpah is a word that's often misused uh, by those who are not native Yiddish speakers. And it's often understood <laughs> just to mean sort of brio and kind of pluck. Um, and in that, with some hint of that usage of the word, I want to give uh, or nominate for this week's chutzpah award none other than Benny Gantz, um, who uh, was, of course, very much Bibi Netanyahu's one-on-one opponent uh, in previous elections, not so much now. His, his party absolutely tanking in the polls and maybe won't clear the threshold and get into the Knesset at all. With that in mind, he issue, issued an election ad, which I just thought was rather brilliant and 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 sort of chutzpah in that kind of bravado sense in which he really leans into his own unpopularity. The ad shows a focus group um, sitting around or individual members of the public sitting around saying all the things they don't like about Benny Gantz and particularly highlighting his uh, failure to keep his promise not to go into government with Netanyahu. That was his signature promise, which he broke. And then in the ad, uh, it shows that Gantz is sitting in a sort of hidden room with headphones on listening and then walks in and surprises these ordinary Israeli voters uh, and then talks to them and engages with them. I think it's an absolutely brilliant piece of uh, election communication. And I um, can predict it will be picked up by other candidates around the world who are similarly ailing and uh, suffering in the polls because it shows so many things at once. It shows you owning the criticism, then you've got the courage to face your accusers, and in the ad, Gantz is seen to be winning over these previous critics. So it it does so much in just a short space of time, shows you're a courageous guy who's ready to, you know, meet your critics. I imagine that Benny Gantz, for having the sheer chutzpah to make an (laughs) ad which is predicated on his own failings, Um, I think he may flourish from this and become a role model for losers around the world. Um, And so I think he gets this chutzpah nomination from me. Um, Firstly, I have to say, you know, Benny Gantz is like the GameStop share in reverse, right? Um, (laughs) In this this election. I think it's a good, it's a very good ad. I, I think that we should just make note that Benny Gantz has got a lot of money that he could spend because he his his uh, uh, funding is relative to the fact that he was a large party and now he's a very small one. But uh, he is he's not in the group that I mentioned before. He actually is doing the work. He's giving I don't know twenty interviews a week, trying to set himself as a, a rival to Netanyahu. I think he actually his his uh, uh, he's improved his chances. He actually might uh, pass and 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 even take votes from the Labour Party, etc., or even from Lapid. So that's an interesting thing to watch. My chutzpah. Uh, nominee this week. First of all, say I have to say that giving a chutzpah award to every public official who breaks COVID guidelines is boring. But having said that, um, when it's the IDF's most senior generals, uh, including the chief of staff of Yukohavi, a hundred of them 
right? In a farewell party that has to get a special chutzpah award. We're talking about an event held for Major General Moti Almos, the head of manpower uh, 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 directorate in the Israeli military. He's the HR general, if you will, uh, former IDF spokesman and actually quite lovely man, but his party had 100 people. Uh, the military said that uh, everyone was vaccinated or 90% of them vaccinated. Still not a very good example. And you would think the former IDF spokesman would know something about presenting the right image. So that is my Chutzpah Award nominee. A worthy nominee, I have to say. Um, and what about for Mensch? I think I've got a, a you know, uh, a, a nominee who I think really deserves it, which is Merrick Garland. Um, the man cheated of his place on Barack Obama's Supreme Court. You'll remember the Republicans held up, refused to hear his nomination for the Supreme Court. He's therefore he's going to get much better hearing for his nomination for Mensch uh, <laughs> uh, of of the week because he's in the middle of new uh, nomination hearings for the job of Attorney General to Joe Biden, and he was asked uh, uh, at some point by I think Senator Cory Booker about um, why he wants the job and, and and what contribution he could make. So uh, you know, I come from a family where my grandparents fled anti-Semitism and persecution. The country took us in and uh, protected us. And I feel an obligation to the country to pay back. And this is the highest, best use of my own set of skills to pay back. And, you know, listening to that, I can't really even get through that without get myself getting a bit uh, choked up. There is something yeah. in my eye on it as I hear <laughs> that. I just think that's incredibly moving and what a I mention. agree. I agree. It's just a beautiful segment. And, uh, yeah, we're both teary-eyed, I think. Um, I, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. Mensch is always a, a bit of a head scratcher. It's easier, for me at least, to find the chutzpah nominee, right? It's always <laughs> sort of. But this week, I have two Mensch. Ah. Nominees um, still don't think I win over yours, but I'll give you the the, the story. One of them is Zor Levkovich. He's an Israeli uh, entrepreneur, part of an Israeli reality show called Shark Tank. I think in, in Britain it's called Dragon's Den. Right, uh, and he has a twelve-year-old uh, girl. Part of the unlucky uh, cohort of kids who are still not coming back to school here, seventh graders to tenth graders are not are still uh, staying at home. God knows why, because the uh, malls are open. But that is the way it works. So he <laughs> rented a huge space uh, in uh, in the Tel Aviv mall and uh, said he would pay for uh, kids going to school there and teachers and all of them. Uh, the amazing thing is that many uh, people actually became super viral. I'm using the word viral again after saying we can't. Um, and thousands of kids wanted to apply, and also senior managers and social leaders. Uh, uh, um, stepped up and said they wanted to uh, volunteer to teach them. So it's a beautiful initiative, also has its own internet site. All this happened in a week. That is my first nominee. The second is a manchette, not a mensch, and she's Effie Hertzky. She's an 81-year-old senior citizen from Ramat Gan uh, who went back this week to gym after lockdown measures were eased. We mentioned this. Um, quite usual so far, but when you hear her speak, she is an Ola, a Jewish-American immigrant in Israel and a volunteer nurse and just a lady with wonderful energy and a sense of humor. And our camera crew, uh, Channel 12, went to one of the gyms and saw her walking on the treadmill connected her with Rafi Reshef, who hosts the five o'clock talk show. And everything that happened after that is solid gold. You have to hear a part of it. Let's let's listen in. Are you married? Okay. It's funny. It's funny. She's very funny. She asked him to marry her, etc. Um 
So actually just, we made, a star is born, right? She's been invited to every TV show, making Olim here in Israel very proud. Uh, so just uh, just to make you smile, Jonathan. It does make me smile. You know what, because it is Purim and it is, you know, the season of upside-downness and topsy-turviness, I thought we have we should have a little game, you and me. Yes. Which is because you I'm have intrigued. been kind enough to show tremendous amusement at my little Britishisms that I've come up with in past <laughs> weeks. Friedland and, on Imperial English, yes. Uh, yeah, and, the, you know, there is a little small reverse ferret fan club somewhere <laughs> in the land of Israel, I feel Some it. Some of them are ferrets in the club, just... <laughs> So, <laughs> thought I'd mention it. <laughs> so I thought this time I would offer to you my favorite Hebrewism. <gasps> I love um, it. Just because I, 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 you know, it isn't one of those phrases. It's a phrase that only exists in Hebrew. There is no equivalent in English. And that's why I love it, even though it actually it's half English. Um, and the origin of the phrase in question is She'elat Kitbag which I genuinely use, and it means the kitbag question. And the origin of it is um, that at a, many years ago at a Labour Party conference, um, I spotted the Israeli ambassador appearing. And I thought to myself, mm, it's actually the festival of Sukkot at the moment. And I thought there was a ruling that ambassadors normally weren't didn't show themselves during Jewish holidays because they were meant to be observing the Jewish holiday. And I said to him, oh, I'm very surprised to see you here. You know, you'd have had to travel up to Manchester and, or Birmingham or wherever it was. And isn't it really meant to be the hug and you're not meant to do that? And he was observant a bit himself as well. And he said, well, actually, uh, you know, in Israel, it's no longer hug, but in, uh, in diaspora uh, it is, but not in Israel. And I follow the Israeli rule. And then I said, but you're in diaspora now, surely you should be following the <laughs> the ruling here outside Israel. I said, have you asked anyone? Perhaps you should ask a rabbi. He said, no, 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 definitely I wouldn't ask a rabbi. That would be Sherlat Kitbag. And, <laughs> and, and the origin is that when you're, as I understand it, when you're on military maneuvers, you're, you're doing your basic training and the, your commanding officer says, right, everyone, get up in the morning early for a hundred mile hike. Uh, you do not put up your hand and say, do I bring my kit bag? Because if you mm -hmm. do, your commanding officer may well say, yes, good idea. I hadn't thought of that, <laughs> but why not carry your 60-pound kit bag on your back? <laughs> if there's a question to, whom, to which you do not know the answer and you do not want to know the answer, that is a She'elat kit bag. And I use that formulation often. And again, just asking the question can have undesirable effects. So it's quintessentially Israeli, right? If you beforehand think that you won't get the answer you want, just don't ask the question. Right, and even asking um, it could bring trouble. Exactly. Leave it in your kit bag. Just leave it the question there. I mean, for example, if we won't ask our executive producer, Leo Freeman, if we can run a bit longer, because then he'll notice that we're running long and he'll tell us to stop. <laughs> so that is a Shelat kit bag. Now, wait, do I get a, a British idiom? You have to. Can, I, can I get one in? Um, which I, I kind of, I contemplated this long and hard because there are so many beautiful ones. But I would say that I think my favorite one has to be a few sandwiches short of a picnic, which yep. is just such a British way of insulting someone. Um, I, you know, in Israel, we would say uh, not the sharpest pencil in the pencil box or you right. know, um, just uh, not reaching the elevator, not quite reaching the penthouse. But um, oh, that's I have, good. I like that. <laughs> but yeah. a friend of the pod, Jeff Abramovitz, called me up today and told me that in Australia, the version of that is, I hope you're listening, a few beers short of the six pack, which oh, is uh, which is quite nice as well, and brings us back to our alcohol theme of the Purim program. There are um, some very telling variations on that. I always quite like the one that refers to the old days when people would save up little discount uh, stamps in order to buy something, and occasionally you'll hear an older person say, "Yeah, he's a few vouchers short of a toaster," which is. <laughs> 
you know, so crazy and yet does it oddly evocative. Um, that's br- brilliant to be the a few sandwiches short of a picnic. Yes, that is my cultural heritage laid bare in that phrase. Um, I think it's pretty good. Even, you know, it's it's a Purim special. We will go back to me doing the Britishisms. You're neat with the Hebrew Israeliisms from next week. For now, though, I have to say, if you are enjoying this podcast. Please don't hold back. Don't be British or English about this. No reserve. (laughs) Spread the love. Give us a five-star review or, and subscribe, obviously, that shouldn't even need saying, and do encourage your friends to follow us as well. And I will say thank you to our executive producer, Lior Friedman, our resident mensch, if you will. And also thank you to Rom Atik and Yair Bashan and Irad Eshel for original music. And happy Purim, Jonathan. We'll meet next week. Happy Purim to you too, Yonid. <laughs>